This is the story of climaxes and endings, and the sundown of a decade that blazed with joy, excitement, and triumph. So much, in fact, that as I look back, I'm haunted by the fear that perhaps I drank the wine too fast to taste it, and instead of slowing down to enjoy the scenery, kept my foot on the accelerator and my eyes on the road ahead, gazing only occasionally from side to side, and waiting far too long to glance at the rearview mirror. The decade was roughly from the early fifties to the early sixties when the Belle Epoque of the musical theatre, that had begun with Oklahoma in 1943, reached its zenith. It was the decade when Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, the creator of the modern screen musical, made its last Academy Award-winning gasp, and within a year closed its musical doors forever. It was the decade that ended with a musical play that became, in a way, the Twilight of the Gods. The last musical score for Broadway by Frederick Lowe, who retired. The last costumes ever designed by Adrian, who died after he completed the initial sketches. The last production of the famous English producer Jack Hilton, who died shortly after it opened at Drury Lane. The last contribution to Broadway of the great Moss Hart, who died of a heart attack within a year after it opened. And a musical that became the symbol of John F. Kennedy's all too brief shining moment. In short, this is the story of my fair lady, Gigi, and Camelot. And in order to explain the part that I myself played, I shall have to begin with the biographical sketch that usually appears at the back of the program. Alan J. Lerner, librettist, born New York City, August the thirty-first, nineteen eighteen. Educated Columbia Grammar School, New York City, Bedales, Hampshire, England, the Choate School, Harvard, forty. Parents, my pappy was rich and my ma was good looking, but by the time I was born, my father no longer thought so. As far back as I can remember, their life together was a familiar symphony in three movements: arguing, separating, reuniting. They played it over and over again, but each time the second movement became longer and the third shorter. Until finally, one day it stopped after the second movement. This was how it happened. Every Friday night, my father went to the prize fights at Madison Square Garden. The boxing profession in the late twenties and thirties was populated with some of the great names in pugilistic history: Benny Leonard, Jimmy McLaren, Maxie Rosenblum, Mickey Walker, Max Baer. Henry Armstrong, Louis Schmeling, Tony Canzoneri, who incidentally knocked out Fritz Lowe in one round and jabbed him back to the keyboard. The list is endless and explains why Friday night at Madison Square Garden was the Philharmonic of sport. Like the Philharmonic, the patrons had season tickets, and the ringside was always sprinkled with the faces of the great and famous. When I said that my father went every Friday night, I should have said almost every Friday night. For on many occasions, his taste for combat drew him to other, more quilted arenas. In those days, people worked on Saturdays, and one Saturday morning, my father later told me, as he was preparing to go to the office, two things happened that had never happened before during his entire married life. The first was that while he was dressing, my mother woke up. The second was that as she opened her eyes, she said, "Who won the fight?" Alas, that Friday happened to have been one of the nights that my father's ringside seat was empty. I do not remember who fought in the main bout, but we'll call them Smith and Jones. 
My father, taking a chance, said, Smith. My mother turned over and went back to sleep. My father went into the dining room and opened the New York Times to the sports page. Jones had won.